welcome back to Fast Jet Performance. This is episode eight, I believe, and this was a bit of a monster post. Uh, it's going to take about 20 minutes. Again, let's speed me up. You should be speeding up now one and a half times. You haven't got the time in your life to consume all this information in real time. Okay, so uh, let's have a look. It's experience or education, how darts and a German racetrack can get you into the top 1.24%. Uh, okay, now there is a video in this post, so even if you're listening on a podcast, I would at some point come to the site or go to my YouTube channel and just watch the video. Uh, the video in the post has got picture in picture of a race car going around the Nürburgring in a simulator. Uh, and in the picture in picture, you've actually got, as if you're on the track size, so you've got two in there. But there's two other videos on the internet, on the YouTube channel, which have pure in-cockpit and then pure external view. Okay, good. If I gave you some darts and stood you in front of a dartboard for a year, could you become the next Phil the Power Taylor with just practice? Or would you need help of someone who had some knowledge of darts? This is exactly what board office worker Justin Irwin did in 2008. He decided that he wanted to excel at a sport, but he had a problem. He was 35 and passed his sporting prime. So he picked darts. He quit his £50,000 a year job to practice full-time and prepare himself for a life of darting glory. What he found out, though, might surprise you. Before we talk about Justin's experiences, let's just take the question a little bit further. What if you could only have one of those options for a whole year? Practice or knowledge? You have a choice, and in a year's time, you'll be entered into the prestigious Lakeside World Darts Championships in Surrey. Now... You can either stand in front of the dartboard for a year and practice for eight hours a day, but with no help whatsoever, or never throw a dart for the whole year, but have every expert in the world demonstrate their technique, talk you through it, watch expert videos, and give you their undivided attention 24-7. Right, what would you choose? We'd all probably choose the practice. I mean, practice is more important than knowledge, surely. Now, if I was more generous and I said that you could blend the practice with knowledge, what percentage of each would you aim for? You see, as humans, we work better when we have a sense of purpose. And without this, we lack direction and a meaning to life. Things like a career, starting a new hobby, or having children give us satisfaction and a sense of achievement, which is also important to us. In fact, the sense of achievement and the attainment of satisfaction are so important to us that we often voluntarily go about finding new challenges and setting ourselves goals just so we have something to aim for. This might be to learn a new language, or to lose a bit of weight for the summer, or to get that promotion at work. Now, some people take it to the extreme and actively look at creating problems just so that they can solve them. The disruptive worker, who always seems to be confrontational, is often just looking for a challenge that they are not getting from the workplace. The same can be said of the school kid who consistently disrupts the classroom. Now, when we attempt to make these changes in our lives, we often go out and buy the latest fad that will help us achieve X in only Y time. So six pack abs in only six weeks. Become fluent in Swahili in only two months. Juggle six rhinos using a left elbow in only a fortnight. You get the idea. In these courses, the authors will invariably look to combine practice with education in order for you to achieve your goal. But what if I was to say that there was one of these elements that was actually far more important in you achieving your goal than the other. And in all honesty, you'd be wasting your time if you were to do both in equal measure. Now, wouldn't that save you time and effort? You could hack learning and become super awesome. So here's the deal. You've heard if you go back to school to get a Master's of Business Administration degree or an MBA, you can increase your above average UK salary of £34,000 to a nice new 87700 
That's what the average expected salary increase for an MBA entrant was in the UK last year. But that's not the whole story. Using other data, those who gained the MBA with less than one year's work experience ended up working for £31,000, and those with less than four years, £37,000. In fact, it's only the 34% of MBA graduates who had between 10 and 14 years of work experience that ended up on the big money, or £87,000, according to Dem Interwebs. Now, it seems that previous work experience is the main factor in an MBA graduate receiving a significant increase in remuneration when accompanied by their new qualification. The MBA without work experience seems to count for very little. So here's some simple maths to start us off. Practice plus education equals value. So small work experience plus MBA equals small money. Big work experience plus MBA equals big money. So using the MBA data as a guide, if you want to become a world-class darts player, it looks like you'd be better off taking a set of darts and throwing them at the board for a year, which is what Justin Irwin tried to do. The experience and practice outweighs the knowledge and education in this particular example. But is that true in all cases? Well, let's look at those terms independently before we deep dive into my experiment. Practice is the performing of an activity or skill repeatedly or regularly in order to acquire, improve or maintain proficiency in it. Experience is the knowledge or exposure to an event gained through involvement in it. So, you can go to a driving range and practice hitting a ball, but unless you go to a golf course, you can't be experienced in the game of golf. Knowledge is the facts, information and skills acquired through experience or education. It is the theoretical or practical understanding of a subject. Education is a more formalised process of receiving instruction especially at school or university. So when we go about developing a new skill, we are doing two things. We are practicing the new skill and we are gaining knowledge from the practice. We cannot practice without gaining knowledge, but knowledge can be gained independently of practice. What this means is this. Practice will always result in learning, but learning can be independent of practice. This is why earlier, when I presented you with this conundrum, you decided, probably in your subconscious, to prioritise practice ahead of learning. You perceived more value from the former than the latter. Now, does this mean that passive learning, or learning without practice, is wasted? Right, so for my experiment, I did just that. Initially, I spent time practising. I practised a lot, until I was happy that I was at the point where I couldn't get any better at what I was doing. Then I spent the next five days learning from every method I could, which was primarily reading, listening and watching. But the learning was passive. I was not allowed to practice during this time. Then on the sixth day, I would take all of the learning I had done and I would compare my efforts with the initial practice earlier in the week. So the experimental phases. This experiment then is to see what effect passive learning has on pure practice. Which discipline is dominant and why? So I would have to practice a skill until I had a stable figure or quantity that would give an indicator of my success. Then I would have to go away and learn everything about what I was practicing. I would then come back with the new knowledge and see if I could improve upon my initial practice. So for the experiment, I decided that I would drive a car around a race circuit without any prior education. 
Then I'd go away and learn how to do it properly before coming back and trying again. So part one is the practice phase. Right, I have to pick a car that I'm unfamiliar with. I have to pick a circuit that I'm unfamiliar with. And I have to drive the car around the circuit and when I cannot get any faster, record my 10 fastest lap times. Now, part two of the experiment is the education phase. So I would then spend five days passive learning away from the track. I would read, listen, watch everything on how to drive fast on my chosen track. On the sixth day, I would go back to the track and I'd record my first complete 10 laps. And then I'd compare those 10 laps with my earlier efforts. The initial practice on track would, of course, influence my later lap times, but this was necessary in order to have something to measure that increase of learning against, which I'm sure we can all appreciate. Now, a few words before I start. In order for me to conduct this experiment, I needed to set conditions that would be as exacting as possible in order to minimise the significant number of variables involved. I would leave the actual tuning of the car alone. The car would be stock and unaltered in any way between sessions. So, minimising the variables in car tuning, which are aero, geometry, damping, spring force, uh, alignment, drivetrain, etc. Here are some remaining variables that could alter from one lap to the next. Uh, mechanical tolerances, wear and tear of engine and chassis, tyre condition and wear, fuel quantity and quality, environmentals, which would be light levels, wind speed, wind direction, uh, other car on track, uh, traffic, slipstream, turbulent air from the other cars, driver condition, tired, dehydrated, and track condition, uh, temperature, surface water content. There are many variables that could alter the outcome unfairly. Ideally, the only variable in my experiment would be the driver, but how was I going to minimise every other variable to make the experiment as accurate as possible over the week-long period? I would have to use a simulator. In this month's Evo magazine, DTM series Mercedes AMG driver Gary Parfit talked about the new simulator that the team have just developed. He explains that most F1 testing is done with simulators now, and DTM is no different. The sim allows the team to remove variables such as tyre wear so that results can be compared with more consistency. The sim even has real discs and calipers so that the correct pedal feel is replicated to the driver. Paffer goes on to explain that the sim is primarily for testing but that the drivers do use it to practice circuits. He goes on to say that DTM drivers are very good at learning circuits very quickly so it probably only gives you a 10 lap head start over another driver on a weekend. This does mean that on race weekend you can start working on the next 10 laps earlier of course. Now, current Nissan Works driver, 22-year-old Jan Mardenborough, started his journey into racing through the use of simulators. At the age of eight, he started playing Gran Turismo on his mate's PlayStation. Now, the Cardiff teenager eventually entered and won Nissan's GT Academy in 2011, an online competition which saw him compete against over 90,000 other gamers. So far, he has achieved a podium at Le Mans in an LMP2, a podium in GP3, was BRDC Rookie of the Year, and has gained multiple wins in his short career. In the applied tactical weapons phase of phase four fast jet flying training, students spend half of their course in the simulator. In the basic radar phase, only five of the 18 events are actually flown airborne. The other 13 are all done using the simulator. The students don't fly at all in the close air support phase and it only contains simulator-based content. Welcome to the new world. 
It was obvious to me that in a simulator, I can tick certain parameters to make sure that the car is exactly the same each time it crosses the start finish line, thus minimizing the variables. In fact, the only remaining variable should be me. So tire wear, no. Realistic fuel usage, uh, no. Mechanical damage, nope. Failures, nope. Track temperature, I'll set that at 22 degrees. Wind, nil. Opponents, nil. And the time of day, we'll go for one o'clock, shall we? After a nice leisurely breakfast. Right, what we hope to get from this information is the difference that knowledge and education can add to when practice and experience is used alone. We should also be able to calculate the variation in the lap times for both practice and practice and knowledge and see whether we get a looser or tighter spread of lap times. And this will show if my driving has become more or less consistent with the addition of education. So I had to pick a circuit that I was unfamiliar with and one that I need to learn from fresh else years of racing at Laguna Seca on Papyrus's IndyCars back in 1993 might give me an unfair advantage. MS-DOS games for the win. So let's geek it out for a bit. This is what I chose. Game. Assetto Corsa by Italian software company Cunos Simulazioni. Pedal wheel set. I'm using a Logitech G27 with a modified braking clutch. That's the spring mod from North America. The track was the Nürburgring Nordschleifer Tourist. That's the one that you go when you take your car there and you go around. They don't race on that Tourist one. They race on the endurance one. But the Tourist one is the harder circuit to learn. So that's the one I'm using. I don't know it at all. And the car is an in-game car. It's a BMW Z4 GT3 with about 500 brake horsepower. So why did I pick the Nordschleifer? The quote here is from Dale Lomas from bridgetogantry.com. Uh, there's so much to know about the Nürburgring. There's no way to accurately convey all of the nuances of water flow, headwind, crosswinds, cambers, surfaces, and even wildlife ingress points to a newbie. Right. So the Nürburgring Nordschleifer is a German racetrack that was built in 1927 and runs through the Eiffel Forest about 30 kilometers southwest of Bonn. The F1 race driver Jackie Stewart named the circuit Green Hell or Grün Hall after its ferocious nature. The circuit is almost 21 kilometers long with inclines from 17 degree climbs to 11 degree descents. It has 73 corners, 33 left, 40 right that a driver must negotiate, and it is deceitfully bumpy, which goes a long way in unsettling a car. Because of the length of the circuit, a road car will take over 10 minutes to complete it, and a GT3 car with raised tyres around 7. Now, I had not used the Nordschleifer before this experiment, as I didn't have the time to learn the circuit, but as the wife is overseas at a conference this week, I saw a man opportunity. Right, I chose the BMW Z4 GT3 as I had yet to drive it and there were videos on YouTube from the GT3 championships that I was going to use for research. I elected to use some driving aids on the car for consistency. I used ABS to stop any monumental lockups and from flat spotting the tyres and I elected to use level 4 of 12 steps of traction control to stop inadvertent back-end step-outs which would reduce consistency for each lap time. Each lap would take me around 7 minutes to complete and one significant lockup under braking could ruin a lap. Now... The purists would say that I should have left the ABS off, and I understand this. And when I use the Ferrari 458 GT2 or the P45 Competition, I do. But I have to keep repeating a seven-minute lap because of a variable that I could have controlled was nonsensical time-wise. Now, the rest of the car was totally standard. Its setup was what Assetto Corsa thought it would be a good for out of the box. And the only variables I changed were uh, fuel. I put 30 litres of fuel in it for consistency, uh, for the weight, and I put fuel hold to be active, so it was not going to use any fuel. It was going to hold that 30, 30 litres of fuel. 
Uh, the tyres, uh, put semi-slicks on there with no tyre wear at all. So every, I'm getting the maximum from the tyre. There's no tyre degradations. Every lap should be the same. Okay, part one then, the practice phase. So driving the BMW Z4 GT3 on the Nordschleifer. Uh, I didn't know the Nordschleifer at all. It's a complicated circuit to learn as it's so long with significant height variations and very little runoff area. Um, I turned the damage off as I kept hitting the barriers uh, and this allowed me to keep practicing without having to restart the lap. I found that I was getting very familiar with the first half of the circuit, but the back end was still causing me issues. It took me a while to really get into the actual track. Now the Z4 GT3 with 55% stability set, that's what the online forum suggested I do, was well balanced and the ABS meant that the car's squirrely nature under heavy braking could be controlled by temporarily releasing and reapplying uh, brake pressure. The traction control allowed me to get the power on early, but it would bite if I used the curbs too much under full load. This kept me necessarily respectful of both car and circuit. And in fact, the curbs on the Nordschleifer were a surprise to me. They seemed very aggressive and the circuit itself was very unsettling for the car due to its undulating nature of the surface. Now, this set of Corsa engineers had laser scanned the circuit, so it was known in online race forums as the most accurate portrayal of the Nürburgring next to actually driving the real thing. So it took me about 25 to 30 laps before I was able to see a stagnation in my lap times. At this point, I went for the best 10 complete laps that I could do. So the lap times for the practice session only I've got here. I'm not gonna read them all out to you, but what I will give you is the fastest, the average and the standard deviation, which is gonna be important later. So my fastest lap was six minutes and 54.707 seconds. Six minutes 54. The average lap time of these 10 laps was six minutes, 55.477. So six minutes, 55 seconds. And the standard deviation across those results of the 10 lap times was 0 0.705 of a second, 0 0.705 of a second. Now, the figure you want to remember for the practice phase really is 6.55, okay? Take that away, 6.55, especially if you're driving a car, don't concentrate too much, 6.55, walk away. Right, part two then, the education phase. So in this phase then, I couldn't use a sim at all until the sixth day. So I was let alone to scour the internet for anything and everything to do with the Nürburgring or the BMW Z4 GT3. Now, any YouTube Nürburgring educational video I would use. One of the best is a guy going around in what looks like a Suzuki Swift, which apparently you can hire. I watched them, rewound them, looked at the breaking points, which apex was being used on double apex corners such as Callanhard, so that you can maximize exit speed, which is all important. I read forum discussions on which part of the circuit could get you the biggest gains. So was it Hatson back into Hockenheim or Brunchen into Ice Curve? I looked at how the track could unsettle the car in certain parts. Did I carry speed into Schweden Cruise and allow the car to be unsettled prior to Arenberg, which would give me more speed into that corner, but I'd have to brake later, and this would mean I'd turn into the corner later and sacrifice exit speed for the run into Futron, which I believe means foxhole. Yeah, so for a week, I geeked it all out like the best of us would. And if you read or listened this far, you do the same. So don't lie to me, okay? So what did happen then? Uh, the lap times then uh, for the practice with the education, I then went back to the track and I hit it with 10 whole laps to see what would happen. Uh, my first lap actually was a 652.1. Now... They then obviously get a little bit better and, and a little bit worse and they stay around um, the kind of 650s. So about five seconds faster. So my fastest lap for this second session where I'm now practicing but having had all my education was 649.551. Six minutes, 
seconds. That's the fastest. My average lap time over the 10 laps was 6 minutes 50.853. And the standard deviation across this range was 0.831 seconds. So the results we compare them together for the practice session and the practice session with education, the fastest lap uh, in the earlier session, part one, was 654.7 versus 649.5. The average, again, was about five seconds apart, as you can sure you can imagine, and the standard deviation was actually bigger on the, on the second session, so the practice with education. From this data, then, we can conclude that if you absolutely want to be the number one at something, then a combination of practice and education is very necessary. It looks like education just goes that little bit further in making a difference. But if, however, you just want quick results, don't put off the practice as you wait for the right learning opportunities. Stop thinking about it so much and start doing it and you'll learn on the way. Now, practice has learning built in. So Justin Irwin never did become the world darts champion, but he did get better as he put more effort in. He realized that there was a lot more to learn than he initially thought. And a lot of it, like anything, was psychological, especially when he was on stage playing against good players. He eventually was welcomed into the darts community and started to learn from them, which improved his playing significantly. Now, just as Justin discovered, practice alone will make you competitive, but it won't get you to the very top unless you combine it with education. But I still believe that practice is the dominant factor in success. There's a quote here. The quote says... I've missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. I have lost almost 300 games. On 26 occasions, I've been entrusted to take the game-winning shot and missed. And I have failed over and over and over again in my life. And that is why I succeed. That's Michael Jordan. Big Mike. Right. My fastest lap after educating myself was a staggering 5.156 seconds faster than my fastest lap with just practice. That is a 1.24% reduction in lap time, or a culmination of 0.067 seconds per corner. The standard deviation then of this second session was 0.831 of a second. So on my educated laps, uh, that was higher than it was for the practice. And I, I wasn't expecting this and I found that a little bit odd. So I went did a little bit of research and it does seem that when you're performing close to the limit of your ability, you're more likely to make a mistake, which will have an obvious effect on the lap time. Of my fastest laps, the difference in lap time for 10 consecutive laps was a mere 2.553 seconds. So two and a half seconds over almost seven minutes of driving per lap. That, to me, was quite incredible. Uh, so if you're an amateur race car driver, then skip a couple of the practice laps and go and talk to another driver, probably one who's not in your race, and ask about how they are tackling the circuit. If you're trying to get head in business, go and seek out advice from someone higher up than you. Maybe ask them to be your mentor. They'd be flattered. I'm sure they would. I've seen it before. But whatever you do, keep practicing. It will get you, as it did in my case, 98.76% of the way there. And as I've said before, getting into that top 1% isn't difficult. It just takes that little more effort. Look, I really appreciate your reading. It was a very long post. Now, if you do have time, go and have a look at the post on the website because it does have the video of the in-car, um, of me driving in-car on the Nordschleifer. It also has an addendum which tells you what materials I used. Uh, and I did use some videos from YouTube 
which is quite useful. It's obviously got some maths in there as well about how you work out standard deviation, but I'm sure people out there will probably be a lot more gifted in that uh, in, in the maths field than me. Um, I would say, actually, something I have found out since I released this post, that as a stock car, that BMW Z4 GT3, uh, I can't find anyone out there on all the race forums that's actually achieved a 6.49 lap. So I seem to have been practicing for the week and have come up with some kind of European or world record on how to get around the uh, Nürburgring Nordschleife um, tourist track. So um, that's something that, uh, yeah, was quite interesting. But I couldn't, I couldn't actually find. And when I actually mentioned to a guy, yeah, I got on a 6.50, he was like, well, not with a stock car, he didn't. And I was like, dude, I did. I watched the video. And he, and he said, well, that's, that's quite impressive. He's never seen that before. So uh, I'm kind of pleased with that, really. Um, obviously, it wasn't a post on how to drive a race car. It didn't talk about all the things that I'd learned, but that wasn't what it was about. It was about the increase of learning over the practice. So bringing education in with the practice that I really wanted to get about. But of course, I did speak to a lot of people about trail braking, about weight shift in the vehicle, uh, all these kind of things. And that's, that's how I managed to get faster on this, um, on this particular simulator. If you want to have a look at it, it's called Assetto Corsa uh, by Kunos Simulacioni. It's on Steam, I believe, is how I run it. Uh, it's a very accurate representation of uh, of tracks around the world. It's got Silverstone laser scanned as well. All the tracks seem to be laser scanned, and all the cars are laser scanned, and very representative of um, the cars that are being driven out there in these race formulas. So, again, thanks for listening. I'm not going to take up your time anymore. It's been quite a fast post, um, although it has taken us about 20 minutes. So if you sped me up, then that's you've done really well, okay? Uh, This is Tim Davies. Again, thanks for listening. Till next time.